0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. With me today is fellow Texan and all round empowered, self confident woman, Natalie, who goes by Tally enough to join me today to come on and share a bit about her life experiences and help everyone broaden their understanding a bit. So thank you, Tally, and welcome.
1: Can you give me one second? Sure. She was fine all day, right? This
0: is actually kind of a good intro, though. I, I like the idea of your mom thing. Yeah. As the lead in. <laughs> Even this sort of quote mistake, I think, is almost worth keeping in. Oh, okay. That cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> go ahead. Can
1: you go grab my phone? Uh, go grab me your bag, please. Uh, grab me your bag. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you okay where were you
0: i think we were about to go into you describing okay. yourself and i would say that number one would be you are a mom
1: all okay. right okay. i'm a single mom i work full-time my name is tally i am a trans woman living in houston texas i don't identify as a woman i am a woman and my pronouns are not preferred they are mandatory. <laughs> I grew up in a religious community. After my father passed away in my early twenties, I took up combat sports. I was doing Muay Thai for 12 plus years. I won six titles and was on the national team 2014. Uh, I was coaching at the same time. I've made several national champions. I had, uh, some really close friends that I've helped also accomplish a lot of stuff. One of them, I had a fighter all the way up into Bellator. I've traveled, um, went trained in Thailand and been around the world and then kind of came back, settled down a little bit, had a daughter, went into being a full-time mom, I guess. And after I came out, my ex, who is my sister now, had to come out as straight. <laughs> and that's another inside joke. So, yeah, I am a mom and I spend my free time right now doing advocacy I have other friends who are actually running the organizations and stuff, and I just get the easy part of showing up and waiting and talking. The other part is doing advocacy at my job, my company. Where to start? There's so much here to cover. I'm overwhelmed with where to start.
0: You had a note in here. Did you feel like talking about martial arts?
1: Sometimes when I get into certain spaces, I'm hesitant to talk about it because that community is very homophobic and transphobic. There's a lot of amazing people in that community, too, and I've seen them kind of come out of the woodwork. I was training under my coach. He was an old Thai man. My brother and I started a Muay Thai program for... Revolution Dojo, which is a friend of ours, Jim. And we pretty much built that from scratch and built a community around us around the sport and traveling and fighting and doing all that fun stuff. you run into a lot of people who don't like your existence <laughs> and you just have to shake it off and keep moving forward and really invest in people and try to see the best in people. And I think the part about the sport that really attracts me the most is Muay Thai culture is significantly different than MMA culture. MMA culture is very much Uh, And this isn't knocking on the sport. like It has the potential to do the same thing. And Muay Thai culture has its downsides too. You know, MMA culture generally tends to be very testosterone-driven, very aggressive. There is still a sense of community and friendship and camaraderie that community has. And there's a lot of gyms that are very wholesome that try to push back against that. In Muay Thai, it's a little different. The martial art, it comes from a country called Thailand. It's a boxing sport. And the history is that I can't remember his name. It was about 100 years ago. One of the princes, he he went to England and he was studying in England and watched boxing, essentially trying to modernize the country. He took their national martial art and made it into a boxing sport. You know, from a Western perspective, it looks very brutal. It involves punching, kicking, knees, elbows, and then standing grappling, sweeps and throws. Usually the fight is broke up when someone goes to the floor, but... The difference between MMA and Muay Thai is that until the ref gets there, everything's still legal. So if you drop your hands and the other person's in the middle of a kick and they catch you, the mentality is you should always protect yourself, which is the boxing mentality. And I've seen at the international games, kind of at the Olympics, one guy kept turning. He was getting clinched on the ropes and he would turn his back so the ref would break it. The third time, his opponent just elbowed him in the back of the head three times and usually the mentality goes, well, we're going to do unknock them out, you know? So we always push protect yourself. It sounds brutal. But on the other end of that, the culture highly values respecting your opponent. And so there's a lot of emphasis on how you compose yourself. The scoring system isn't based in the same way that Western combat sports is scored. Western combat sports usually looks at how many strikes landed, how hard did you land, how effective. Then there's ring control and so forth down the line. The sport, it is scored similar where it's not about volume, not scored on volume, but scored on effectiveness and also style it kind of causes this boxing sport to be just as equally part ballet as it is combat sports. And so there's this thing of demonstrating to the judges, you are the stronger fighter. And that comes from balance and control and grace. And if you don't have those things, then usually judges don't interpret something you may land as effective or as hard. Because if you aren't in a balanced position, you can't really generate any power or torque. So at the beginning of this fight, it usually starts off with a thing it's called a Ramway, or like a white group, which is a, essentially like a fight dance where you're paying respect, kind of like your, your lineage and your coach and stuff. So you imagine you have this band playing this music with drums and a, and a reed instrument, and then you have this whole dance thing that's done before the fight, and then you have the fight that starts with this same music. So the whole thing is almost presented like a dance in a way. It's just a very, <laughs> unfortunately, violent dance. Fighting in the States, you start here and it's very aggressive. It has a lot of toxic masculinity woven into combat sports here in the States. For me, it was making it about having fun, making it about keeping that composure and then and just applying that to everything I do. When I started to travel, I started meeting other people who fought and you, you notice the difference. You get in the ring and it's less about I'm trying to knock this person out you end up having a lot more fun because you're both extremely competent and skilled fighters. And there becomes this moment where it ends up becoming a lot of, okay, let's see who can outperform the other person or who is the better fighter, less about just landing a lucky knockout punch. So it becomes more about the dance and less about the violence. And I think that's something that's missed out on a lot on Western audiences. Translating from that, because of the misinterpretations around it or the violent culture, I, sometimes I found that I lived a compartmentalized life where one big part of my life was training and fighting and people at the gym. And that was my community and family and people I spent most time with. And then outside of the gym, my friends, I had a lot of friends that were more artsy and in the queer community, doing theater and a lot of friends in college for legal stuff. I guess my friends outside of the gym didn't really mesh well with the gym life. So I had to go into one area. I had to leave the athletic part of who I am behind to hang out with my queer and nerdy friends. And then I had to leave that behind to go into this place that is so heavenly masculine. I mean, even before I came out, I had people who would always comment. I'm not saying this to brag on myself, I don't, just the feedback from people. They always noticed that I never had that same need to do this pecking order thing with other people. I don't like hierarchies. And so even when I was training fighters or had people under me, under my supervision as a coach, I still treated them like equals because they are, I mean, they're there working hard and I think you should respect them just as much as they respect you as a coach. There was a gentleness that I I tried to bring from that other part of my life. That is harder to find because of how aggressive that community can be. And as I started to travel, I started to find other people in the Muay Thai community. It it seems to attract, especially in the Northeast is... I have a lot of friends in New York where one of my friends, she's mostly her post Muay Thai career is doing BLM and like uh, other like activism stuff in New York and New York city proper. And just being outspoken for uh, Asian Americans and um, in the queer community and other people of color. And she's just, she's fantastic. I was on the 2014 team with her. You know, I went to Austin not too long ago. The first time to speak maybe a couple months ago I got there and the grad who runs, uh, he doesn't run it, run it, but he's like the guy who organizes everything. He's like, Oh yeah, we have two other Muay Thai fighters here. You may know them. And I was like, Oh my God, I may actually know them. So I get there and some of my fighters have bought some of her friends (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, I knew you. Oh, yeah, this is so and so. Oh, yeah, this is, you know, so we ended up, you know, we hit it right off. And it was kind of cool because in order for Muay Thai to get one of its last accreditations towards the Olympics, we needed to have a gender equality committee. And the person that gave it to, they're non binary. They showed up there and they're pretty awesome. Daniela. She showed up because she recently moved to Austin, and it's something close to her heart. She has trans people in her life, and as a female fighter, she wanted to get out there and add her voice to defending trans people in sports. kind of got to play bodyguard a little bit because there's always people that think they have this idea of who we are as queer people and they get to meet some of us and the egos aren't there but I think you may be underestimating some of the people you're dealing with if you're trying to be a bully you know that's what I guess bullies do. I had heard everyone that was arguing for these bills started out with things like, I'm a biological woman, or they identify as a woman, as as to insinuate that we're not actually women. I started out with, I'm a biological woman. As a trans woman, I don't identify as a woman. I am a woman. Because that's what we are. At its core, transphobia is essentially misogyny. When I was testifying in Austin both times, everyone else had already made the arguments about how this negatively affects our community, trans youth, how it isolates us, how it's essentially state-sanctioned segregation and so forth, right? It really seemed that advocates for these bills were trying to depict this false two-side narrative, this idea that it's women versus trans women, and they would even coast it in this language that sounded sympathetic to the hardship that queer kids have to deal with. At the same time, while trying to put the window dressings on their argument to make them seem less bigoted, their underlying assumptions came back to women are weak and need to be protected from these biological, air quote, boys. They're not boys. As a coach. One of the things I noticed was a lot of coaches did not believe women punched hard or hit hard. A lot of them didn't, real, didn't believe women had knockout power or all this stuff. In having this belief, they set up a situation where they had a self-fulfilling prophecy. They didn't believe women fighters were actually that great. So then they didn't put that much attention and power into them. Or they believed that women fighters were weaker So then they didn't train them to hit hard. They trained them to hit a more technical and light, which is fine, but more be a point fighter. And I don't buy that for one bit. (laughs) And every time I would take a fighter up there and I would train them hard, they would literally just wreck any person that they fought. And then they would turn around these coaches. They would train their fighters in such a way that they believed that female fighters weren't as strong or as capable. And as a result, the outcome, their fighters would be less capable and less prepared for their fights. And then they would turn around and point at that as evidence for their original claim. And when I would take my fighters up there, they would wreck shop. As a fellow woman, I know what we're capable of. These same people who, they were like going into tears, protect us. My first thing was like, okay, so and in doing this, you're reinforcing sexist, racist, Western beauty standards. On top of that, you're subjecting women who might not fit into these misogynist ideas of womanhood into a place where their uh, womanhood is questioned. We know how this negatively impacts communities of color because dark skin and sharp features are already perceived as masculine. So already off the bat, people of color are disproportionately affected by these bills. And if you look at every single woman whose capabilities come into question, it's usually a woman of color. And if we look back in the past, it was, well, we need to protect women from women of color because you know, all these racist ideas. And so, A, we know that this disproportionately affects those communities. Secondly, we have a problem with coaches and doctors sexually assaulting our young women in sports, any sports. You already know how awful parents can be on the sidelines of a sporting event. Now imagine if you give that parent the weapon to question the sex and gender of the person their daughter lost to. So now you have someone who, if you're a woman, if you're a girl and you're too good, then you're questioned on, are you actually a woman? Are you actually a girl? And this is the part that really gets me even more is now this poor girl has to go to a doctor who may be a creep for all we know, or you have a doctor who's constantly making these claims and forcing people to come in or coaches. When I was listening to the lady trying to argue for her bill here in Texas in Austin, she was trying to say, we can look at the birth certificates. The senators were like, if it's corrected, then that information is corrected and it's private, and like, well, who will be looking at this? And i like, well, the school. And they're like, well, they'll have to submit it. Okay, but if it's changed, this corrected, then it just says female, like mine does. How would you be able to tell the difference between a trans girl and a cis girl? Her reply was, well, you would just know. And then the community would just know. And that makes me think if the whole community is convinced that this poor girl is their boogeyman, there's nothing in there to protect that person. And so now we create another self-reinforcing prophecy, right? This belief that women athletes or girl athletes, female athletes that were less, if they perform excellent, then they're questioned. So then they have to taper their performance to meet those standards or those expectations of them as girls and women. Then they say, see, they pointed that outcome that they just created as justification for those bills. I have a friend of mine. Her youngest sister, she's cis. She's absolutely gorgeous. She's the sweetest thing in the world. She's 23. She's about 5'10", 5'11". So she's tall. All the women in their family make more testosterone, just genetically more testosterone. They don't have any conditions. They're just genetically make more testosterone. So her hands are bigger. Her feet are bigger. Her voice sounds like my voice. She recorded samples of her voice. and My speech therapist was able to pick up how she would make adjustments. The way that I've been making adjustments to make her mouth sound smaller and higher and all this stuff. You have a cis woman with all the same things. She hangs out with a lot of trans women because she just thinks trans women are awesome. But also I imagine she feels some level of normal there. My point is not only do these bills put our young girls at risk of sexual assault from coaches and doctors and people who want to weaponize that. Also parents air quotes, Karens out there in the world. And you can imagine how traumatic that is for any kid, not just trans girls. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think we have this perception that trans girls or trans women are going to automatically always win against a cis woman, which doesn't happen. I recently was asked about a trans athlete's quote, stealing these wins from cis athletes, cis women athletes, or cis girl athletes. And One of the things I said was when a cis girl or cis woman athlete defeats a trans girl or trans woman athlete, did she steal the title from the trans athlete? It just appears to me that there is not a consistent, oh, it wouldn't even matter. I mean, it really doesn't even matter. Even if there were consistent wins, it wouldn't matter. If you had a particular group of women who were just fantastic athletes, why would that matter? They would just be fantastic athletes.
1: The first thing when these bills start popping up, they used was a cyclist. She won some world record and it blew up everywhere. Everyone was using that as a justification for implementing these laws. And she wrote an article and she's like, I lost the last eight times I competed against this woman. And then literally after she had made that record, it was broke 30 minutes later by another woman in another state doing the same thing by a cis woman. They grabbed that little snippet and they just ran with it. And now every time I hear it, I have to repeat the same story over and over and over again because no one ever hears the rest of it.
0: They count the hits and they ignore the misses. Exactly. The
1: recent one that really just, this one's one that like irks me the most. And I actually ran into her, Alan Fox, in, uh, at a Facebook group. I really hadn't taken the time to look into it. But you always saw in the headlines, everyone used the same example. She fractured this this woman's skull, air quotes, right? So I'm like, you know what? I've been hearing this for the last several months. I'm going to finally dig into this. Turns out she fractured an orbital bone of her opponent in a very back and forth fight. It was just a good fight. There was no advantages here. It was just them both exchanging. They both wanted to stand and bang in MMA. And then I start, okay, she fractured, fractured her orbital bone. And then I started looking up statistics for fractured orbital bones in MMA. It's an extremely common injury in MMA because of the smaller gloves. They're able to put a lot of impact in one precise area. I went and started looking at the history and there were several other instances of this happening in women's combat sports. In MMA, in the UFC, they toned it down to, oh, she had a fractured orbital bone. They were just more honest about it. And the next thing that got me after that, I watched a fight where... Fallon Fox, she was fighting this, this other woman. And this woman came out of the gates and outmaneuvered her, got her to the ground and got the submission. And instead of praising the woman for like putting in her hard work and being the better fighter that night, they go, Oh, Fallon Fox must've not been expecting her to come out this aggressive. And I was like, what a way to shit on both of these athletes. A, you're insinuating that the trans woman lost because she just like took it for granted And then you're insinuating that the better fighter that night, the cis woman who dominated her and beat her in the first round, just got lucky. Wow. Just fucking wow. When I see this stuff, and it just really kind of irks me, just the blatant dishonesty and it doesn't take much searching to go and find these other instances of the same injury and there was somewhere else i was going to go with that and i lost my train of thought i just got really well,
0: no i mean i see what you're saying right so it's like you can have a dozen fights where two cis women go out in a ring and break orbital mm-hmm. bones yeah. and nobody bats an eye you put a trans mm-hmm. woman in the ring she breaks somebody's orbital bone and suddenly trans women shouldn't be fighting yeah
1: They asked Ronda Rousey, who at the time was the champion, the biggest, baddest woman in combat sports at the time. And they said, hey, will you fight her? And she's like, no, I'm not going to fight her. This is something that a lot of people don't realize in combat sports is that a lot of it is it's and I think it's a good thing. It's it can be bad in some ways. And I guess it makes sense because it is kind of a combat sport. There's a lot of injuries that come into it. You get to kind of choose who you fight. It's not like like a, a basketball match where you're, you just are playing throughout the season and you get automatically matched up by the organization. They will kind of make the match. But then what they do is say, hey, will you fight so and so? Imagine you already have this myth of trans women being some kind of steroided monster and no one will fight her except for the women who have nothing to lose. And so guess what happens? You end up having, we call the term cans, people who aren't at your experience level having to fight you. And so you get several wins as a result of being the more skilled fighter, but only because all the people who fought you are the only people who had nothing to lose by fighting you self-fulfilling prophecies.
0: Sometimes I just simply say that trans misogyny is misogyny. There are times when I think it is relevant to mm-hmm. label it trans misogyny because I don't mm-hmm. want to erase that aspect of it, but it is still misogyny. It would be the same if it were misogyny against women of color. I would be totally happy to include the racism in the misogyny that is a form of racist misogyny. There's a label for it, misogynoir. I don't know if I'm mispronouncing that. Misogyny against women of color. There are times when it is relevant to say that this plays a role in it, and there are other times when it might just be included as more of a general bucket of misogyny. Although misogyny can take many forms, it's still all misogyny. I respect the layers, I don't mean to say that we should not use those layers. We do have to address all the layers, but we should make a point to understand that, like you say, it's something that impacts all women. We can't just isolate it to a certain group of women and say, since it only affects them, it doesn't affect Mm -hmm. us. That's a mistake that was made in the past that hopefully we have learned from that you do not take certain women out of that mix and decide that you're Mm -hmm. not going to protect or defend them unless it somehow also is directly impacting me. Like it can't be indirectly impacting me. If it's not directly impacting me, I don't care about your struggle as a woman does not really Mm -hmm. help. That's a really bad attitude. Some of the other things that trans women bring to the table to help really the entire community of women is a message of, for example, body positivity. Absolutely. So there is this idea of women being women and not being judged on their bodies. And mm-hmm. that is something that I think is very important. And Absolutely. you have other communities like women who are heavier, a lot of times also have that same thing that they're bringing to the table to say that this is body positivity, that this is going to be acceptable. This is going to be beautiful. This should not be judged or rejected because it doesn't fit some social ideal. The other thing that trans women bring to the table that helps all women and this, it's sort of, I guess, a component of the body positivity, but it's a little bit more specific they combat the idea of reductionism. Yeah, For so long, cis women have battled this idea that they're not just sex organs. Now that there's this really powerful trans movement coming to the forefront, we're seeing Mm -hmm. that a lot more examined. And Mm -hmm. I really appreciate... Being able to say that gender and womanhood is not simply something that can be reduced to body parts, that we are not just broodmares and we are not just sexual objects that are peripheral to cis men, that we are not just something that produces an heir. We have our own existence and our Mm -hmm. own agency and our own lives and our own being that Mm -hmm. is separate and apart from anyone else.
1: The term I like in that is breeding stock. It reduces womanhood to our ability to have children, reduces us to breeding stock. I I don't know, maybe that sounds like too shocking or whatever, or too jarring, that term, but I feel like that kind of gets that same.
0: I mean, that's the whole label of broodmare, right? It's just this idea that women are being used to reproduce, women are being used as a thing Mm -hmm. for men. This is something that women have had to overcome. And I feel that- Trans movement helps to bring that into greater focus.
1: My career fighting and coaching really taught me about a lot about life and about myself. I got to fight in an arena in front of 10,000 people here in Houston on national television. And then I got to fight overseas in front of a lot of people. I don't know. It was a lot of people, three rings going, taking on these challenges and succeeding. And even if I didn't succeed, just trying to do our best. I think they really prepared me in one way because at my job, they've been holding out against implementing policies internally to address equality at work. It gave me this reputation as everyone knew who I was as a spider. But they also knew that I was really nice. And I was always very gentle and very sweet to most people. It kind of protected me when I came out. And my other part was I decided to go big. So I came out in front of the executive board. And we did this thing called Courageous Conversations. So I came out in front of 250 people and the board of directors of this giant multinational company. (laughs) It gave me the confidence And the ability to stand in front of those people, I have the confidence to share my story. It made me feel a lot safer because I'm a harder target. I have a lot of friends who were combat veterans. I have a friend, she's trans and she fought in Fallujah, you know? I think there's some level of when you're a trans femme person, you have to dem- almost demonstrate your masculinity, and your value to people around you as a safety mechanism. And then afterwards, you get to throw it away because I, my Canadian friends, they scratch their heads about this. They don't at work. Pe- instead of people harassing me and threatening me, I just got silence. And so I was like, well, I'm in a unique position where a lot of people know me as a fighter and I have the ability to protect myself and protect others. I'm kind of a mama bear. <laughs> and so that's really what's been kind of driving my advocacy is I kind of have lost a lot of my, uh, my I guess, my cred in the fighting community. And I do have a place in Dallas to train. that has been freaking fantastic. But the community's kind of divided on me a little bit. You know, that kind of leads into my activism as someone who has who has the has a platform and has the ability to stand up for other people that may be downtrodden. I am very fortunate to find myself in a position where I have the skills and also the reputation that protects me. And I try to use that for other people who haven't had that. No one did that for me at my company and where I worked and in my life. And also growing up in a religious community because no one did it for me. And I had to do all this stuff for myself. I don't want anyone else to have to do that. I went into work for several months, wondering if I was going to get murdered this morning, Um, wondering if I was going to get shot. And so it's taken a lot of being loud and maybe obnoxious and also having allies and people willing to also stand up with me and share that burden a little bit. And as a coach, I invested in a lot of people, you just do it because it's the right thing and you never know what you're going to get. And if you expect anything in return, you're going to always be disappointed. But I have been surprised at the people who weren't okay with me. And there's been a lot of pain there. And I think I've shared enough about the pain. <laughs> um, and I'm sure every trans person, uh, I have another friend of mine, they um, they make this joke and we have like a little group chat and they're like, oh yeah, every queer person being queer is essentially pain, you know, every queer person has like a sad story, you know, but I've been thinking in the last month or so about shifting in myself. I think I've done all the grieving that I've needed for the last year. And now I'm in a place in my life that I'm getting ready to take on some big changes. And I'm really focusing on like wanting to start celebrating the people. I've had another friend who is a fighter in his early part of his career was that macho, toxic dude and came back to me. And he's like, hey, Natalie. And I did not expect him to message me and call me Natalie. He's like, hey, I just want to tell you, you know, like you're so brave. You're incredibly strong and courageous. Everything you've done for me, you you hold a special place in my heart and I'll be here for you with whatever you need. And he's like, I heard you're going to fight again. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, let me know. I'll help you. And I was like, oh, shoot. Just going from seeing so many people, so many of my friends who posted extremely just violent things about Fallon Fox. I still don't feel safe walking into my old gym. The owners are awesome. There's a lot of great people there. There's also some people that I'm not necessarily uh, comfortable around. And that's usually because certain people are in Texas and lots of people have guns. (laughs) And people do things when their emotions are high, they may regret later. So I would just like to avoid that altogether. But the positive parts that I take away from that are that I've had these people really step up and go to bat for me and really step up at work. You know, you lose your families, you lose all your stuff, your community, your gym community, all this stuff. And then you really are just, at least I'm amazed at the people who have come back, like my friends in Dallas, uh, at Rojas and stuff, just, you know, at my old gym, (laughs) they were like, oh, we're going to have a women's day. And if we don't care what you identify as. If you don't have a uterus, don't show up. You know, I'm like, oh, great. What about trans guys? <laughs> wow. Is, you know, yeah, super shitty. And coming out in that environment, that's the constant everyone over and over, you know, and then like hoping that coming out would change those opinions and perspectives. And, and to some extent, I think they have some of those people kind of come around just from like, oh, shoot, we didn't really realize you were dealing with this. But I've also had a friend of mine, Vanessa, up at House in Dallas. And she sent me a message and she just straight up on my wall, not even a private message. Like, hey, girl, we're doing a, a Women's Plus Empowering Muay Thai event. We would love for you to come and train with us. And this was like six or seven months into my transitioning, right? Or coming out. And so like, you know, I walk in this place and like, I'm getting some side eye. But, you know, she's just led from the front about tally's a woman. and And sure enough, by the end of it. We're all just sitting around and talking and having a lot of conversations. It had nothing to do with like trans people or whatever, just like bonding afterwards after training and seeing that shift. And people actually like, oh, this person that we were suspicious of, (laughs) you know, she's actually a a a woman just like us. And then now, like the last time I was there, as I posted some stuff about, hey, can I do private lessons or do some coaching? Because at my old gym, I asked about maybe doing some classes because they were letting me kind of just drop in and train there for free. So it's like, well, can I teach a class? Because I don't want to just take advantage. And they're like, they didn't really want to acknowledge my existence on paper. And they didn't want me to like teach a class, you know. Um, and they were like, well, we'll let you do some private lessons. I'm trying to raise money for like medical costs and stuff. And they were like, well, we'll let you do some private lessons and stuff. You can use the facilities, but like keep it on the down low and stuff. And It's like, oh, just keep your head down. And, and I think the owners genuinely, they're grappling with, there's a lot of people at their gym that aren't happy about it and happy about me. And I've been there and, and explicitly told me like one of my former fighters that no one else believed in him. And I told him next year, I'll make a champion. Watch. I took him to nationals. I made him a champion. And he's all like crying and stuff because he's like, oh, my God, you know, believing in people that no one else believes in. And then having the same person coming back and going, well, you know what? You're not my coach. He's like, you're not my coach. My coach is redacted. I'm going to (laughs) use redacted. My coach is redacted. They made me a champion. They did this, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's all like starting to get teary eyed. He's like, everything just fell apart when you left, especially when you came out and all this stuff. And almost like he seemed to be blaming everyone else's response, everyone else getting weird on me for coming out instead of just them being weird. They own how they respond to me. I do not. I was trying to be as listening and as patient. And so at the end of it, I was like, I don't know why people are like this either. I just wanted my family to love me. My gym family, and I'm getting teary eyed at this moment. I was like I put so much time and invested so much in y'all because y'all are my family, and I love y'all and I thought y'all would love me too and wanted to love all of me, and things never really got any better from there and we had one guy there's one guy who comes occasionally he would i don't be like just pooping up shitting on the gym or anything like that. There's some great people there, and I'll get to that in a minute, but you know, like he would post constantly. Just about Fallon Fox and wanting to physically assault Fallon Fox or any trans woman who wanted to get into combat sports
0: or whatever. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're a real tough guy, you know. As also a woman, that makes me uncomfortable that there is a guy who is getting his rocks off thinking about assaulting women. I I understand that, you know, this is a sport that has contact, but what you're describing is malicious in nature.
1: I have never, ever, ever, ever hit someone outside of a consenting arrangement. Even when I'm fighting, I go up, shake their hand. I get to know them. I say hi. I've always been just that weird person who's like, make friends with the person I'm fighting because it's a sport. It's not personal. It's hard for me to wrap my head around why someone would even fantasize about hurting another person. It doesn't make sense to me. Even as a fighter and as a coach, that doesn't make sense to me at all.
0: kind of curious because you had touched on but I'd like to get a little bit more into when you were growing up in Thailand you have on the agenda that you're the child of evangelical evangelists so your parents were actually very active were they in Thailand for mission work
1: yeah it was it was mission related we were based in Bangkok we um, hopped from there to other countries in Southeast Asia, and occasionally we'd go Laos, Cambodia, during the late 80s, um, and I think we came back by '90, so I was there for about, went there when I was about a year and a half, and I think my brother was eight months old or something like that, because uh, I, re- I remember being there, too. Yeah, we came back in, I, I want to say it was like 1990, like late 89, so I was there for, you know, not like a huge amount of time, but... For a kid, as far as you know, that's been your whole life as growing up
0: overseas. You have on the agenda that you were actually active in youth church. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they were heavily involved in doing evangelist work out there and not in Southeast Asia. And then we came back, they kind of did different like ministry stuff we were involved in. I kind of tagged along as a kid and I grew up in the evangelical community. And as I got older and became a teenager, I'm kind of struggling between how do I fit in, right? Like I'm drawn to and hanging out with these other kids that would fit in, in the queer spectrum, but also being in church. I was in drama for a couple of years at Lakewood. And then when we moved to another church closer home, I was involved in youth ministry and in the music band and then leadership, just like our leadership role stuff. I was pretty deep. That <laughs> was pretty deep.
0: I mean, what kind of messaging were you getting? And how was that impacting your experience? What was happening with you during all that? That's a good question.
1: I internalized a lot of transphobia. Raw me is just going to say it like, you can only take people telling you that God hates you long enough to where you eventually believe it. And then eventually you're just like, I don't know. I just know that I care about people and that's it. You internalize that my former spouse, I love my in-laws. I was actually ended up being closer to them than my, uh, my parents I was close to my dad, but he passed away in my early twenties. And when I got married, I was actually closer to them than I was my own mom. My mom was the main one who always really punished any sense of like femininity around me. So she was the one really driving a lot of this. You are a boy, you need to be a boy, blah, blah, blah. And my ex's family, they are also very evangelical and they run a Christian rehab facility or a faith-based rehab facility for substance abuse. You have these people that are part of your life. Your whole life, they're sitting here telling you that these people are bad. They hate these people or they dislike these people or blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, but I'm one of these people. (laughs) It beats you down and it really just destroys and wrecks your own self-worth. You're asked to continue to sacrifice yourself and who you are. I was so afraid of how me coming out was going to affect everyone else that I didn't think about how it was affecting me. And that's when it kind of got to a dark place after years and years and years. And at one point after I had my daughter, like my ex-father-in-law, he had said, because he went and testified for some of the, the trans bathroom bills. And I was just like, why would you do that? I'm trying to like talk to him a little bit. And he's like, well, you know, like, cause he knew like, He's like, oh, y'all are my crazy hippie kids or whatever. Maybe it's a joke or whatever. But, you know, he's like, I don't care if someone is trans. I just, I don't want him in the bathroom. I don't want a man to walk in the restroom with my daughter. Do you want a man to walk in the bathroom with your daughter? He said this to me and it just, I was just crushed. I've gone over this a thousand times in my head, but after it happened, and uh, when I was telling my counselor, like, uh, you know, because we were supposed to after I came out, supposed to have like a dinner or something, and uh, it nothing never came up during dinner. You know, like when we went out, and he seemed to be really quiet about the whole thing. It wrecked my self-esteem. It wrecked my self-worth. It put me in a very dark place where I genuinely felt like I would have been better dead than living authentically. I felt like in my own head that all these people that I loved, they wouldn't have to deal with. I guess it was more, I didn't want people that I love to feel ashamed and to be ashamed around other people. And how was it going to affect their standing in their communities? And how was it going to affect my brother right now? He hasn't said anything explicit. That's my son at a tournament. He came and gave me a he's relatively nice, but also like, he keeps me at arm's distance because he doesn't want. He's ashamed of me, and my other family is also ashamed of me, and my mom is ashamed of me, <laughs> and my gym family is ashamed of me. Everyone's ashamed of me, and I guess the fear was if that there wouldn't have to be that shame. And then eventually, I got to a point where I realized that was dumb. <laughs> Through a lot of counseling, actually, I actually tried to drive my car into a truck. <laughs> I'm laughing now, but like. Not so funny back then. Wow, (laughs) that was kind of the wake up moment. Suicide is weird. You don't do it because for selfish reasons, you usually do it because you care so much about the people around you that you're afraid of how your continual life negatively affects them and you feel like you're better off not around. Sometimes you have not everyone, but if you have a failed attempt and then you realize I need to get some help. Shortly after I came out to my wife, her ex-wife seemed to be, um, and it was kind of received mildly hostile. She's apologized since then, but she's she's also been an amazing, educating herself, and she's been an amazing um, ally and uh, I'd say sister (laughs) in a lot of ways. And even standing up because my in-laws that were heavily religious. When my daughter was born, you know, I've always been their mom. I was their primary caregiver. And I don't think it's always attached to mom or dad, male, female, non-binary, or anything. Like it's just people. Whoever fits that role best is primary caregiver, and then you have primary provider, or some amalgamation of both, or some right in the middle. Families come in all different sizes, shapes, and flavors. I definitely have a lot of, I would say, maternal instincts. I guess I don't know, <laughs> um, but for me, it came really natural, nice. um, and it's really sad because. Ronnie has to deal with a lot of shame from people in our community because she's more of a provider person. She's still Isla's mom, but she's a provider mom. Did you always have clarity
0: around who you were? Oh, that's a good question.
1: Yes and no. I have very vivid memories of when I was a kid and like a really young kid and going into my mom's closet and dressing up and then getting scolded by her for that. Going into her closet and not understanding why I'm being scolded, but knowing that it's wrong, air quotes, and sitting there and just being sad. And when I was in first grade, all my friends were other girls in class and not understanding why I was being made to sit with the boys and be in the boys' place and just feeling isolated because I didn't fit in with the boys'. And I wasn't allowed to hang out with the girls. <laughs> and, but yeah, like I had this kind of moment of coming home from first grade, I was in my grandma's blue Cadillac. And it had kind of dawned on me. It was like a, it's like almost like a movie nightmare realization, realizing that everything was wrong, realizing that everyone has been attaching boy to me for such a long time. And then realizing, but I'm a girl. And then putting those two things together. It's almost been like being in a nightmare and working towards coming out for 30 years, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's a long time. I knew deep down inside and I had a, a, a horrible experience going through puberty. And I think it's a pretty shared common experience for all trans people. But also having this deep sense of feeling ashamed of it, it needed to be hidden at all costs. Some people figure that stuff out later. I guess I was one of the people that knew, but also was kind of trying to deny it at the same time. I mean, I knew. I knew that I was a girl, but I didn't because the community was so hostile towards other queer people. It was something that I locked away and I hid. The way I explain this to my speech therapist and also my counselor is this has been a long excavation just removing the layers the sedimentary layers of society placed on me because when i was a kid i had times when i would sneak putting on dresses or sneak anything i could do to feel myself for a few minutes and then you know when puberty starts to go a different direction you just kind of lose hope you try to just ignore it you try to just go on about your life and i think about 20 i almost transitioned. My dad had kind of softened towards queer people, and he had noticed that I didn't really do a whole lot of dating in high school. When I did date, it was short. He'd ask me several times, like, you feel different, don't you? And then, like, he had a business, like a mortgage company. The landlord, you know, I can't remember the guy's name, but they were were friends. They were buddies. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, so-and-so came out to me the other day, blah, blah, blah. I'm like hinting at like, okay, it's just yeah, you your dad is me? dropping
0: hints. They yeah. kind, of, kind of, <laughs> of heading down a, a track that he's thinking you're gay. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I looked at the costs and I would really looked into how a lot of people had to go into pornography and into sex work to pay for this stuff. Sex work is real work. I'm gonna make that explicit between that and the costs, it just seemed completely unattainable because I used to go out to the gayborhood area a lot. Because I lived in that area. I lived down there for a little while. uh...
0: Wait, did you call that a gayborhood?
1: Yeah, the gayborhood.
0: Is that like a neighborhood where there's gay people? Yeah. I have never heard that term. What? Oh my God. I haven't.
1: Okay. Well, we used to call them mantras. We still call it, to some extent, the neighborhood. But like,
0: okay, well, that's a new learned. phrase for me. I've learned.
1: Something. <laughs> well, I'm glad I got to introduce you to this. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Anyways, the thought of that, the thought of losing my community, my friends, losing my family, the last part was the last little nail in that coffin. It was like, okay. If I transition, I'll probably never have a kid. And this was really dumb. I don't know, if I even thought that. It's like, you know what? I'd rather have a kid. So I'm just going to shove this down, just go on and live my life and I'll be okay. And that's usually not how it works out. It ends up just getting louder and louder and worse and worse. And apparently now I'm finding out there's lots of other millennials my age that are all coming out in their 30s because they tried to do the same thing through their 20s. So I'm a millennial stereotype.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, to be honest, that's very similar to gay coming out when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I remember I knew two gay people who were out as gay when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. But then some years after high school, suddenly I found that I had gone to school with lots and lots more gay people. So they (laughs) weren't. out and then later they came out and many of them ended up divorcing after having kids and they were just like i'm gay and so there was a lot of that same repression within the gay community when i was younger that is exactly what you're describing here
1: i think the funny thing is when i came out to ronnie for her it was like all the little light bulbs went off all the dots connected and she's like actually that makes a lot of sense (laughs)
0: one of the people I went to high school with was a guy I sat next to on the bus like every single day. We were just the best friends. And I mean, I would save him a seat. He would save me a seat. It was just, we were bus buddies, right? We didn't have any classes together, but we were just tight on the bus. I remembered after I found out later that he came out as gay, like much, you know, after high school, I just thought, you know, I never saw him date. He never talked about girls he never talked about like it was just a, something he never ever even mentioned or brought up and now I'm like oh okay that that actually makes sense
1: <laughs> the weird thing is he probably didn't even in high school he's trying to like figure out all this in, in his head just and trying to probably run from it too
0: I don't really know if he understood he was gay then, but I assume that he may have. I'm not saying that he didn't realize it till later. I don't know if he ever went through that marriage and kids thing. I just know that at some point someone told me, like, did you know he's gay? And I was like, no, but there's a light bulb going on right
1: now. Yeah. Yeah. That tracks. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up. I thought about that same parallel. I have a friend of mine who takes private Muay Thai lessons from me, just kind of to help out with my medical costs and stuff. And he is a Gen Xer gay man. Funny side story. So we go up to lunch and he's like, well, Where do you want to sit? Ladies pick. And I was like, let's sit here. And it's like the biggest booth. And there's us two, just us two people. Okay. The lady sitting is down she looks very annoyed. And so I sit down on the far opposite end of the table and I look at her and go, I don't want to sit next to him. So I mean, making fun of just the fact that the absurd size of this booth that i picked oh, <laughs> um no he shared a lot from his experiences that's really helped me kind of draw a lot of parallels this is what you were going through 20 years ago hopefully it's the same <laughs> <Ain't> outcome but <laughs> you know more acceptance and stuff That's something that, like, I've used a lot in my messaging when I'm speaking in front of, the, you know, the Senate committee hearings. I was sitting there listening to all these people essentially using TERF talking points. If you don't know what TERF is, it's they call themselves trans exclusionary radical feminists. Essentially, what it is, is it's transphobia under the guise of feminist and academic language, but it's been thoroughly debunked by sharper minds than my own. And I'm sure most most people listening to this are already aware. I don't have to. I'm preaching the choir today. I know they're philosophically speaking, there is a deeper meaning to the word identity and identify in these terms. And one thing that I feel that a lot of times bigots do is they're good at grabbing one little thing and it's a half truth. And then they're good at weaponizing that. In this instance, taking the term as, well, this person identifies as a woman. And I've even heard a bi woman tell me this. Well, they identify as a woman as if to insinuate the person isn't a woman. Or when people say things to non-binary people, what is your preferred pronoun? As a woman, I can only speak for myself. People say, oh, what are your preferred pronouns? Sorry, this isn't preferred. These are my pronouns. I don't identify as a woman. I am a woman (laughs) that happens to be trans. I can only speak from my experience as a woman, but I extrapolate this to also cover non-binary people. They're not AFAB or AMAB. They're not assigned male or assigned female at birth. They're non-binary No one even needs to know what their assigned gender is at birth. And that really kind of irks me just because I have a lot of non-binary people in my life. And when I was first coming out and figuring this out, I spent a lot of time in the non-binary community. And they were very warm and welcoming to me. And I feel like I owe them a great deal. Sometimes they get kicked down by other trans people. They take those little things and they weaponize them. They want to sound like they're still using that language, but that they're still... The insinuation is that trans people aren't who we say we are. That's the part that I really want to drive home. You can trim the fungus of your bigotry. Like, ah, I don't care about gay people as long as they do it away from me, right? But they still hold on to that little spore of bigotry, that belief that in somehow being gay or being trans or being some flavor of queer is inherently less. And that's the part I I want to, I always want to unpack with people. And so when we say trans women are women, trans men are men, and non-binary people are non-binary, it's an ontological claim. When I'm arguing, I'm not going to concede the ontological position. The person who despises me, why should I meet them in the middle? They need to come to me on my terms. So when I'm there testifying, I'm like, yeah, I don't identify as a woman. I am a woman. And I am also a biological woman. I've had amazing people that I love very much that are big allies slip up and say, oh, biological woman. And like, yeah, I know it's offensive, yada, yada, yada. Okay, well, I'm less worried about the offense. What I care about is what is the underlying assumption, right? What's the presupposition of that that is offensive? What's the thing that makes it offensive in the first place? The assertion that you can reduce someone's womanhood to like biological essentialism. I'm a woman. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. My body's a woman's body. I'm biologically a woman. You have to like walk them through that for that to click. Well, you know, the brain is also a sex organ, too. So it's like not everything is what's in your pants. It's what's in your head, too. And I'm sure I'm not a biologist and I'm not going to speak on things that I don't know about. But as, as a trans woman, I know very much that I'm a woman. And I refuse to accept, accept to play their game with their rules because they deep down inside, even if they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to be nice to them, but they're not really who they say they are. That really leads me to just driving home that, look, this is who I am. I'm a woman. You don't like it. You can take it or leave it. The downside is I have to be careful. Because there are sections of the trans community where they identify as a man or a woman first and then trans last. And those individuals usually tend to leave the trans community because they want to be so overly well, overwhelmingly accepted by their family and by society that they essentially leave that part behind. And everyone needs to make a decision. We call it going stealth and everyone needs to decide what's best for them. I don't know what's in those people's lives, and I'm not going to make a value judgment on the decisions that they have to make to survive. But I know that to do that, people have to make a sacrifice. They have to sacrifice a part of who they are. I have a friend. She's dating a guy, and I have no idea. He was, well, actually, she recently just broke up with him, but he voted for Trump. <laughs> he doesn't like trans people dating a trans woman. And when she brings it up, he's like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about your past. So like there's this level where she has had to, for a while, a long time, deny who, a part of who she is to be accepted as who she is as a woman. When I say like I am a woman first, I'm not advocating for blending into the cis heteronormativity of like society, conforming to the expectations of society around us. Let's totally destroy the patriarchy, right? <laughs> um, I can be this thing and I don't have to conform to those ideas. And if you notice, I am doing some vocal speech therapy because I would like to be able to decide if I'm out because I drive through rural Texas a lot. And I want to make sure that if I need to disclose for safety reasons, I have the ability to. For a lot of people, I use this voice and I maybe sound like a woman who's chain smoked for 40 years, but I'm a woman. My voice is a woman's voice. That's why I'm using it today (laughs) because I have no, no qualms about that. Obviously back to personal decisions, right? And not conforming to societal expectations of women.
0: In the cis community, we are so used to not having to think about it because people make all these assumptions that really that's what they are, assumptions. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think that because the assumptions favor us, they are concrete yeah. and not no longer assumptions. Yeah. Right? So if someone assumes that I'm a woman and refers to me as miss or ma'am out in public, I don't have to even think about it. That's, that's how I identify That's how they're referring to me. Everything, you know, the stars are all aligned and it's just beautiful. But if I was constantly being misgendered, I would have to think about it. And if everywhere I went, people were confused about my gender and calling me by pronouns that didn't fit me. And making assumptions about my gender that were not correct, suddenly I would have to start asking, why is this happening? When you have to think about it, mm-hmm. and when you're not just automatically assumed, there has to be language that describes this experience. People will try to assign it, like you said, they'll try to be very reductionist and say, oh, it's about how you were identified when you were little. And it's like, well, how I was identified was the doctor eyeballed my crotch and took a guess. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's as, you know, medical and sciencey as it was. Yeah. And it just happens that most of the time the doctors can guess within a pretty good tolerance. So it matches and, and we're lucky that it matches. And if it doesn't match as you're describing, it can be very Mm -hmm. unlucky. I
1: like how you were talking about how everything lines up, all the stars in line, right? My boyfriend had asked me. We went out for a few drinks and I got misgendered and the bar actually is they try really hard to be inclusive. And it was just a mistake, honestly. But I was obviously kind of frustrated because I'd been my dead names on my credit card and my ID at the time. I'm jumping through all these hoops to like get all this stuff corrected and fixed instead of having some easy level of self-determination within society. I have to like prove to cis people that I'm not who they assert that I am. That's frustrating. But I got a little like upset. And I kind of had clapped back at the bartender and, and I felt really bad actually that I, I sit down and he goes, Hey, you know, I, I have a question. Don't mind. Like I noticed you got a little flustered and he dead named you. Why is that? I am wanting to learn. It's not your job, but I really want, I want to know you more and I want to know like how these things affect you as a person. Before I started transitioning, I didn't really think it was going to be that big of a deal getting misgendered or getting deadnamed. I just thought, eh, you know, whatever, people are dumb, you know? And the reason why it had become such a sore spot, I had gone through all these things. I had a mom who was like, whoa, you're always going to be redacted, deadnamed, and like people asserting that they have a right to call me by my dead name and misgender me and all this stuff. And I had to, I had to really put my foot down and really create some hard boundaries. I'm telling you who I am. And if you want to be in my life, that's your choice. These are the rules to be in my life. You're not entitled to be in my life. Being in my life is a privilege. I deserve the same dignity and respect that you do. When I would get dead named or get misgendered, it brought all these feelings and emotions and frustration We don't have a problem with calling artists whatever they want to be called. Puff Daddy. I don't know. All these people, right? Eminem.
0: Yeah. I mean, someone gets married, they change their name. We change their name. I dated a guy whose name was William David, and he went by Dave. Mm -hmm. I didn't say, why do you go by Dave? It's not your first name. I'm going to call you William.
1: Society doesn't see trans people as worthy of the same dignity and respect. When I would, would get misgendered or get dead named, it was like all this struggle to get other people to have just enough respect for me as a person to properly gender me or to call me by my real name. My real name is Natalie, not Redacted. All those feelings would come back to the surface. And, and it also kind of ties into when you're at least trans, as a trans woman, I see this with some of my older gay friends. This low sense of self-worth, and that comes from being told that, well, I love you, I just don't love your lifestyle, which is something that's kind of a part of you. I only love half of you, essentially, with someone saying, I like Yeah, the- absolutely. I love the part of you that's convenient to me. And it's painful to discover that these people who supposedly loved you all this time don't actually love you. So you get misgendered or you get deadnamed. And all that pain just comes all flooding back. Um, well,
0: I mean, isn't that kind of what dominant culture is, though? It's the idea of I was born with this respect and with this right, and everyone else has to earn it. I mean, you can pretty much look at almost every power imbalance, and what, yeah. that's what you'll see is somebody saying that I was born with this particular privilege, and everyone else has to earn this.
1: <laughs> I did a summer job once, therefore I earned it. You should do all these extra hoops to do the thing that I think I did.
0: But I mean, when it comes to the cis community, yeah. we don't, we feel like we don't have to do anything to earn it. Like yeah. we should just be granted it like magic from birth yeah. and everyone else has to earn it simply because they weren't recognized from the time they were born. If, if the doctor guesses wrong, then that's what I mean. You're just that unlucky person that's going to not be respected and who's going to have to struggle to try to earn that respect. And uh, good luck with that because it's not easy coming. I actually have been putting more thought into this idea of how people are describing transphobia and hanging out in forums. I see a very different use of that label, and a lot of times people are using the word transphobia in the cis community to really harass and harangue and gaslight trans people. They'll try to reassign that word something that they think it means. When you are the in the oppressor class, you do not get to define the oppression. Mm -hmm. it's the person experiencing the oppression who gets to describe it and to define what that is and what that feels like and what bothers them what hurts them what damages them what harms them they're the ones that get to describe that because they're the ones actually feeling the brunt of the oppression me as the oppressor i don't get to do that and when it comes to gender cis is a privileged position over trans when it comes to societal value and when you have A binary status as a trans person, you're going to have a societal value over and above somebody who's non-binary, right? There's going to be that privilege of the binary. So cis people have this advantage over trans people have this advantage if they're binary, have this advantage. You could even say trans men have an advantage over trans women, mm-hmm. right? That trans women are far more likely to be mistreated, to be the yeah. focus of social hate and anger and violence. I mean, so there are all these hierarchical mm-hmm. complexities to how these power imbalances play out. And mm-hmm. one of the things I've noticed about things that the trans community calls transphobic, when I see somebody who's trans use that word, it almost always comes down to either in a subtle way misgendering. Or or in an overt way, misgendering. And I think with the dead name, it not only misgenders the person, but it also brings up an entire past that is at best going to be completely uncomfortable, but at worst going to be absolutely traumatic. I don't know what kind of violence or what kind of loss or trauma or rejection is going to be tied to that history with that name. And I just don't think people understand the impact of that. So when somebody in the trans community reacts badly to it. Like you're saying, you reacted in a way that was very powerful. It was more than you even expected from yourself because there was so much more to it than just a name. When a cis person sees this reaction, their response is sort of like, oh my God, somebody just called you a wrong name, you know? And, and I mean, not used to your name. So how are you being so vicious about it or so making such a big deal about, it? instead of looking at it from the perspective of the person who has been dead, named to understand everything, all the baggage that comes with that name and to say, oh, wow, yeah, this is a big deal. And we need to be careful about dead naming someone. And if somebody gets really upset and we do it, we have to apologize for that. And we have to own that. Yes, this is like, I really not just stepped on your foot, but broke your toe.
1: No, absolutely. Right. If you haven't had to struggle to be recognized as yourself, then being misgendered on accident or being dead name, it doesn't hurt. You can go back to your family, your mom and your dad or your partner and whoever and your whole family and your community. Like this is another thing. You can go back to all the people in your life that you grew up with, your church, whatever community you're a part of. And everyone else there is like, yeah, that person's dumb when you don't have all that, all that stuff's stripped away. And there's this denial of agency, denial of self-determination, denial of your autonomy even. I mean, there's a whole nother conversation there about the medical industry and trans people that we can get into later um, as I'm pushing through this journey. I went to stop at a gas station here in Texas called Bucky's. It's just a glorified, it's a glorified truck stop is what it is. <laughs> and the guy there who was servicing, me seemed really annoyed. He seemed really annoyed that he had to serve a trans person. So very quietly and under his breath. He said, oh, here you go, man. And my head, I kind of chuckled about that. I've seen the shift of, well, okay, cool. You may not agree with this, but you can't like harass people. I'm starting to see people that at least they're just trying to be nice. And to some level, I have a problem with that because that's going to come back and bite the next person in the butt. When we have a bigger push later on for even more non-binary inclusion, that spore bigotry is still there and we're still trying to root it out. Let's just root it out now. Let's just take care of this right now. If you have been accepted for you, who you are your whole life and you have all this stuff, yeah, it's going to seem hyperbolic when someone responds like that. If you call someone a transphobe or you call someone a racist, the first thing that comes through their head is explicit racism, explicit transphobia. And so I've had to explain this to my boyfriend. Like He's like, has anyone confronted you at a bathroom? And I'm like, no, but I almost wish people would confront me at bathrooms or would just say awful things. The things that hurt me the most is the suspicion. I go to a women's restroom and people clear out. They don't want to be seen as a bigot. So they're not going to explicitly go full Karen on me. And like, want to speak to the manager and have me kicked out. But at the same time, they still don't see me as a woman. They Another thing is, you know, shooing their kids away from me. Because they don't want their kids to see a trans person. Apparently my existence is so awful. Or at the park or whatever. So those are the things that hurt a lot, a lot. And I guess I can also say, ending that on a good note, as I've also seen a lot of people in the last few months, I was really surprised. Like I have two friends, I call them like my sisters. We call, we have our little mom community. We call ourselves the well pod (laughs) because one of my friends has a swimming pool. And so it's like a bunch of moms with their kids around a body of water, right? (laughs) So we're the well pod. (laughs) Feeling trusted and included. The other day we had a, a company work meeting and we had to go down the street to a hotel because we rent out like their conference rooms and stuff. So there's about a hundred of us employees there. And one of my friends, she's still struggling. She comes from a religious upbringing, right? She even lost one of her childhood friends who came out as trans and she was really bad to them, and she, you know, now she's like, you know, I don't want to do that again. And so she's still struggling because she was my friend before. But the first time she was like, she's like, hey, uh, you want to go to the restroom? And I really surprised me because we went to restroom. And I was like, hey, I know you're doing the ally thing. I appreciate the, the small things of going to the restroom and standing next to another woman and washing your hands and chit chatting while you're washing your hands. Those things are like the little victories. The little moments of acceptance, the little moments of kindness. And I think I, I shared a few things on my TikTok about those little moments of kindness. Like I had one of my friends, like I was painting my nails and she came up and she was used to be a nail tech. And so she like helped me finish them. That just meant the world to me. That little bit of kindness had made my whole week. Those things that people get to take for granted.
0: Like being treated like a human being.
1: Yeah, exactly. You can start a conversation with someone and right away, they're real nice, at least in Texas culture.
0: Well, and they will appropriately gender me most of the time and they don't ask to see my genitals first.
1: Exactly. Right. Yeah.
0: It sucks. I don't know what else to add to that. Just people. I don't ever have to prove my gender to anyone. And the things that they say do prove gender, they never ask for. So without any credibility whatsoever, they just believe me. Mm-hmm.
1: That kind of ties back into another thing. We still have a long way to go. We have to celebrate our victories. That's something that I'm personally learning how to do. In Harris County, I'm fortunate. If I go to jail, I will be put in with the women. Even if you're not even transitioned, if you showed up and you were cross-dressing or whatever, or you're just a trans woman who doesn't need to medically transition, there's an incident where a bunch of the women, especially Black women, they were like, she's one of us. She belongs over here. You know, because they were disgendering this trans woman, right? The women they, in the you know, prison
0: were trying to protect her.
1: Yeah, because she hadn't medically transitioned. And the women in the prison were trying to protect her and keep her from being put in with the men. Outside of Harris County, if I go one over and my boyfriend was correctional officer for Montgomery County, he's told me of what he's experienced, how they treat trans women out there in the jail. It broke him. That's one of the reasons why he quit. They will put me in with them men. And then I'm subjected to all the things that any other woman or femme person would be subjected to in a men's jail. There's all this background anxiety. I drive through rural Texas I was on the phone talking to my boyfriend and on the way home and because I have trans stickers on my car and I still have my old Beto sticker on my car because it enrages people, I guess. But like, I always have people fucking with me on the road. My ex, she had an equality sticker in her car. She had three people try to run her over and run her off the road in their trucks in that car. I've had people try to do the same thing to me. I've had people like buzz me with their horns, like right next to me, like air horns and stuff. And I posted this video on Facebook. The guy was, you know, he wasn't shooting directly at us, right? He was shooting into the ditch, but his body was facing us. And so you've got 1130 at night, you're coming home, you have your kid in the car, and this person is is facing you and shooting their gun into the ditch, using a firearm as, in a sense of like for intimidation and threatening you. If you go to jail, you don't know if you're going to be put in, where you're going to be put People are like, well, why would you be worried about that? And I'm like, because I don't know. I don't know what kind of cop I'm going to run into. I don't know what day if someone decides they don't like me because I'm trans and they want to plant something on me. And now I have to struggle. Even if we get everything fixed later, I shouldn't have to go to a men's jail and get raped. And then, oh, sorry, we made a big mistake. Here you go. You're free now. No big deal. No hard feelings. I I recently went out on a date because we kind of have like an open thing, you know. And this guy apparently wasn't comfortable in his own, I guess, self. We went out. So the first place we went was not like a gay bar or anything. It was just a regular place. And he d- was not comfortable being seen with me at all. That was strike one, you know? <laughs> and then it was like, he felt okay once we got down to the gayborhood. Those things compound is what I'm trying to say. If we blow up at someone and say, hey, you're being transphobic. And they're like, what? Their initial thought is that must mean that you're someone from like Westboro, Baptist church holding a sign, or at least I think in my head they think person, and I think well, transphobes are bad people, or homophobes are bad people, or racists are bad people, and I'm a bad person, therefore I'm not those things, you know. And I have a trans friend, therefore these beliefs um, are okay, or that person was okay with these things, or like
0: your friend that you were talking about, I I'm dating a trans person, so how can I be a transphobe?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Somehow that justifies. I literally had people tell me, oh, well, this other person didn't have a problem with that joke at their expense, right? And it's like, well, only the person that the joke is at the expense of can consent to that joke being at their expense. It kind of goes just with everything else, dead naming, everything, right? things you have for me? Any questions?
0: Not from me. I was going to ask if you had anything else you want to hit. We have just a few minutes left.
1: I don't need allies. I need accomplices. So if you have a trans friend, you have a queer friend of any flavor, it takes more than just being a friend to that person it means standing up with them standing up for them if someone comes along and says something bad about them to you because of who they are say something back be out advocating for people's rights if you have a trans woman who's your friend and you're a woman go to the bathroom with her talk to her just include her in your daily stuff if a binary person they're non-binary even if they dress feminine if they're non-binary femme they're still non-binary Take that to heart. And when people tell you who they are, believe them. Go out of your way a little bit and show a little extra kindness to people. Those little acts when you don't get them a whole lot or you don't get the things that everyone else takes for granted when we don't get them a whole lot, those little acts of kindness, they make everything bearable and worthwhile. That's all I got.
0: Oh, I think that's perfect. Thank you so much.
1: problem. Thank you for having me and thank you for doing this.